Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. On this week's pod, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange's Biotech Chapter Turns 3. BioCentury speaks with former NIH Director and Nobel Prize winner Harold Varmus who is now chair of the Science Council of WHO. We'll also discuss what kind of choice President Biden has as he is picking a permanent FDA chief. And our deal in focus looks at today's deal between Syndax and Insight. Today's pod is brought to you by WBB Securities, the banking leader in customized financial solutions in the life sciences space. Currently presenting on its website, SARS-CoV-2 Beyond Delta. Check out their website, www.wbbsec.com for more details. First up, Stephen, you've been chatting with folks about how the Hong Kong Stock Exchange's biotech chapter has evolved since its launch three years ago. Maybe we could first take a step back. Why was this created and where is it now? Sure, Jeff. Thanks. The biotech chapter on the Hong Kong exchange was created for pre-revenue biotech companies. So before this, if you were a Chinese biotech or pharmaceutical company, there were essentially revenue or profit thresholds in place in order for you to list on an exchange in China. And companies essentially had to get to the point of commercialization before they could really go to the public markets. What the Hong Kong Exchange did is set up this specific Chapter 18A, or what's known as the biotech chapter, really to cater to these pre-revenue companies that we see list on NASDAQ or European exchanges every year. The aim was really to open up another route of financing for these companies where we had seen lots of private companies coming through and really give them an avenue to the public capital markets. I think it's extraordinary the amount of money that is being raised in the China biotech sector. It's obviously also a message for places like Europe, because that amount of money is going into China. Is it at the expense of Europe? We don't really know. Stephen, what I believe we're seeing, though, is the Hong Kong exchange emerge. There are other, obviously, exchanges in Asia. But the Hong Kong exchange, in particular, the biotech chapter, is really emerging as the dominant one. That's right. To me, what's most remarkable is that in three years, as Jeff said, it's only three years old, and it is already very much the second largest hub for for biotechs globally in terms of a public market, which is pretty remarkable. But maybe considering that China has such a focus on biotech, it maybe shouldn't be as surprising. But what you say about the other exchanges, we just saw, starting in 2019, the Starboard really start to come on. And we saw some pretty significant raises on that market as well. But what's changed there is they clarified some of their listing requirements such that it really precludes your typical phase two biotech from looking to list there because they essentially want you to be able to show that you are going to be profitable or turning a revenue within four years of listing, which I think we know, given the risks of drug development, not many companies, unless you are in the process of filing for approval or already on the market can really make that sort of guarantee. So, so d- that, d- just to clarify, you're, you're talking about the Star Exchange in Shanghai, right? That's right. The, yes, sorry. Yes, the Starboard Exchange in Shanghai. 
which, as I said, as of 18 months ago, I think a lot of people would have said was rivaling Hong Kong. And there were lots of companies that were looking to either dual list or even in some cases have a third listing, both in Shanghai and in Hong Kong. As we've seen so far this year, if you look at the first half of the year, all the companies that have gone out, um, the Shanghai exchange that we track, have all been commercial stage companies. So situations where those new requirements wouldn't really be an issue for them. How much of the rise of the exchanges in China, especially in Hong Kong, do you think is a result of geopolitics of Chinese government and as a result of Chinese government policies, Chinese companies wanting to disengage from the United States and Europe, not wanting to rely on capital inflows from the United States and Europe and not wanting to expose themselves to the kind of of scrutiny or oversight that they might get in the United States or Europe? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Steve. I think a big issue is there's been a lot of legislation or at least talk of legislation about changing uh, listing rules for NASDAQ to ensure that there's more transparency for China biotechs and, and frankly, some biotechs in Europe as well. So I think that is a factor. Uh, Marco Rubio has had a number of bills that would affect Chinese biotechs. And you know that, in addition to geopolitical tensions, I'm curious what you've been hearing about this, Stephen. Uh, yeah, the few, it wasn't a focus area of my conversations with some of these investors, but it did obviously bring it up. And most of them, at least in terms of the SEC disclosure, most of them brushed that aside as being not something that they would expect any of, at least their portfolio companies or the companies that they're interested in having to deal with. I'm sure it does play a role, Steve, you're right. I think what's harder to maybe disentangle is clearly China has made biotech and the biopharma industry an area of growth for them, a pillar of growth long before this chapter was launched. So I think this is an extension of that, of this being a focus area of growth for them in terms of their five-year plans. It's definitely part of that, whether it's how much priority is on not being reliant on Western capital flows. I don't think you can say that the Hong Kong exchange is that because it is in and of itself, there's a lot of foreign offshore money that comes into these companies. I mean, the investors in these companies are the same investors that you see on NASDAQ in a lot of ways. What's different is where the money is coming from on the retail side. The retail side, it's coming from Hong Kong investors, but the international offering part of these deals is just as much the Fidelities and the other big name investors that you would see on an IPO in, in New York. I think I just want to also put some context around this because obviously what we're talking about is the Hong Kong exchange and the investment angle and the geopolitics, but we have to acknowledge that the regulatory landscape has also massively changed in China. We are in our eighth year of our annual China conference. We've literally seen this just flourish in front of us. And regulatory changes, financial changes, just a growing sophistication of the sector there, I think is converging. The Hong Kong chapter was a really timely intervention. And we will see then whether this sort of continues to grow or if it's going to taper off. If some of this massive enthusiasm then meets the reality of the difficulty of actually making drugs. <laughs> yeah, I think that because it is such a nascent sort of market in Hong Kong, I actually think the approach they're taking is, is the right one in that they're, it's limited to companies that are phase two ready. So you're trying to bring in slightly less risky companies into the exchange in terms of what you're exposing investors to 
Whereas I think if some of these other exchanges had been allowed to just flow freely, it's maybe hard to say what sort of quality you would be getting coming out. And so it's almost like a bit of a more controlled aspect. And the, the understanding I got from folks when talking about this is that they don't see the Hong Kong listing requirements changing anytime soon. So I don't think we're going to be seeing, for instance, like any of these preclinical biotech coming to the Hong Kong market and raising 500 million akin to what we saw in NASDAQ last year, where you had $200 million being raised by folks with a pencil and an idea. Stephen, a final question on this before we move on. What's next for the exchange? So they're really looking to just continue to build out the ecosystem, I say, is what their focus is, looking at improving ETF products, which can help diversify the types of investors that are investing here. Really early on, it was mostly focused on therapeutics and drug development companies, but now they're seeing more diagnostics or medical device companies coming. So there's a bit of a broadening out, but there's 30 more companies in the pipeline in the IPO queue. I think there's plenty more that will be coming through in the near to midterm. Excellent. Well, Stephen's story will be going up in the coming days, so look for it at biocentury.com. Let's turn now to Simone, who spoke last week with Harold Varmus, the former director of NIH, who has now taken up a post at the WHO. Simone, what did you guys talk about? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So there are two parts of the conversation I want to raise. One is related to what he's doing now at WHO, and the other is some sort of interesting thoughts he's got about science domestically in the US. So Harold Varmus, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, was NIH director from 1993 to 1999, which actually, of course, overlapped with the AIDS crisis. He unusually then went from NIH director to NCI director, which he ran from 2010 to 2015. And of course, Varmus is best known really for his work on oncogenes, which he did with Mike Bishop at UCSF and for which they were awarded the Nobel Prize. His roots are in cancer, but he has become a voice on science in general. And he's actually been doing a fair amount in terms of viruses fighting pandemics. The Science Council at WHO is a new council as of April. He is the first director of it. And his mission, his first mission, he says that the council has agreed on. Right now, there are nine members of the council. I will say it's a gender-balanced council. I think there's five women and four men, so good for them. And so the first mission of the council is really about creating genomics capabilities globally, meaning in every country. And importantly, he says, matching that with clinical outcomes. And his point is, it's fine to get genomics. We can all get genomics data. But if you don't actually have the clinical status of the individual or the outcome of what happens to them, you're really only scratching the surface of the information that you can use. What he told me that I thought was interesting, I asked him about infrastructure. He says, well, actually, some low and middle income countries have way more sequencing capabilities than you would think. But the problem is in the infrastructure that goes around that. Well, that is, he says reagents is, in fact, the biggest roadblock at the moment and training people to use it and various things around actually just the sequencing capabilities. One of the things when Dr. Varmus headed NIH, he had a few things that he was really passionate about. And one of them was open access. And the form that it took when he was at NIH was really trying to find alternatives to the really high-priced publishers, Dell, Sevier, and, and the like. 
I'm wondering what he's thinking about open access on genomic information. Great question, Steve. So actually, Varmus is still flying the flag for open access. And what he pointed to that I thought was fairly sensitive, he said, look, in many of these countries, it's a really difficult question, he said, in many of these countries, you've got researchers who are trying to build their careers and they're getting genomics information. But on the other hand, not making that public is really counter to everything we need to do in the pandemic, which is to get as much information out there as fast as possible. So he does, yes, he calls for open access databases. He did talk about some of the databases that exist, but some of the restrictions for data going in or out of those. He's still very passionate about open access, although I would say he's, as you would expect, not unconcerned about the ramifications that has for scientists' careers. But he also has thoughts globally on, in particular in the US, how science is being done. And he's written about this several years ago. He and several others had a sort of a roadmap for fixing what he called fundamental flaws in US science. And as you pointed out, Steve, a lot of that really involves making more things open access and making scientists' careers less dependent on whether they get that big, splashy publication. Well, it's interesting also. I thought one of his points is to make it less competitive. You know, he he kind of argues that too much of science is adversarial and ultra-competitive, and that's not actually productive. That's right. And I actually think he's right about that. And he says he's talked to many graduate students students, I guess, at all levels. And he says it, it turns people away. The hyper-competitive atmosphere turns people away. And the other thing he says is that, which we all know to be true, we're pumping out many more PhD graduates than there are room for in academia as academic careers. And he thinks that there's a lot of progress being made among mentors or principal investigators, understanding that their PhD students may not take a path in academia, that there are many other avenues that those graduates can turn to. And of course, biotech is one of them that's benefited. But I want to bring up one more thing he said that I thought was very interesting. I asked him, in fact, he volunteered information about ARPA-H, and he raised something that, Steve, you've written about, which should it be housed inside NIH or outside NIH? He says one of the best things Biden has done for science is to create a cabinet level position, which is Eric Lander. And what he wants to see is a whole department of science technology that would house some of these new things like ARPA-H and the Pandemic Preparedness Initiative and initiatives underway at NSF, the National Science Foundation. Well, Eric Lander, he is a national monument, but he isn't actually a cabinet position. I think the position is the um, presidential science advisor that's made a cabinet position. The thing that I found interesting is he basically, in saying that he thinks that there should be a new agency outside of NIH and incorporating some elements of ARPA-H and some elements of NIH, some elements of CDC, in a way, he's throwing his hands up and saying, look, the NIH can't achieve all of the missions for which it was intended. CDC can't achieve all the missions for which it was intended. It's too much trouble and too much political hassle to try to reform these agencies. So let's just start something new, a third thing in parallel with it, and hope that goes better. I agree. I I think that is the take-home message. 
I, I did ask him and he said categorically, yes, this is separate from NIH. He wasn't advocating any changes with NIH, which I took to mean exactly what you say. Let's just create something new that can house these new ideas, enable new things without working on fixing the ones we already have. And I also have to take some credit because many years ago, I wrote a story. There was a lot of enthusiasm for doubling or increasing the NIH budget. And what I wrote was that rather than increase the NIH budget, they should keep it as it was, keep it going, adjusted for inflation and create a new science funding agency that would work in parallel with it. And part of the thinking that I had was that everything works better with competition and that NIH would work better if it knew that there was a rival science agency that was getting funded and trying out new ideas. And I think that's sort of what Varmus is getting at here. He's not saying that there's anything wrong with what NIH is doing necessarily, but he's saying that there need to be new ideas and new paths forward, and they're not going to happen at NIH. They're not necessarily going to happen at NIH. I think that if you started something new like that, you would also see an acceleration of change at NIH because NIH wouldn't want to be left behind. Anything that a new entity did or new processes, new ideas that they had that were good ones, there would be a push to take them up at NIH as well. All right, let's turn to Washington now. Uh, we're still waiting for President Biden to name a permanent FDA chief. Steve, what choices does he have? Well, first, about the timing on it, just to remind people, we've brought it up on the podcast before. He's got until the second week of November to do something. Janet Woodcock can serve as acting commissioner until the second week of November. Then something has to happen. If President Biden names her or someone else as his nominee and sends a nomination to the Senate as permanent commissioner, Dr. Woodcock can stay in office as acting commissioner until the Senate takes some action. Alternatively, if he doesn't do that, President Biden could appoint someone else on an acting basis. I think everybody would agree that, that would be bad for a country that's grappling with COVID and it'd be bad for FDA because there's a lot of business that FDA has to attend to that can't really be done without a permanent commissioner. So Biden's going to have to take sides really in disputes among Democrats about the purpose of the FDA and the philosophy that governs its actions. One camp is pressing for accelerating the pace of drug development. The other is pushing for a slowdown for FDA to adopt more of an adversarial stance towards drug companies. And I think that President Biden, either implicitly or explicitly in his choice, is going to have to take sides in that dispute. The way I look at it, every commissioner redefines the role, and they're selected by the president based on different ideas about the kind of commissioner that president wants. So one question for Biden is, if he wants someone who's going to hew to the public health mission and stay away from politics, or if he's going to appoint somebody who's an activist and who seeks to become a player in political controversies. I think either way, whatever he decides, it's going to be intrinsically controversial even if he chooses somebody who thinks wants to hew away from that. Do you think it's inevitable that there's going to be a Senate confirmation battle over this? No, I don't think it's inevitable. There are people that President Biden could choose who would be non-controversial, who Democrats and Republicans would support. It's certainly not going to be unanimous, but I don't think that it has to be someone who's controversial. The other thing, you even can't in this hyper, out, sorry, even in this hyperpartisan Senate. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that. Look, there's a, just checking you haven't forgotten that we had a hyperpartisan Senate. <laughs> <laughs> no, and also I have to say, we you can't rule out the possibility 
that he would appoint Janet Woodcock. If he did that, it would be very interesting because the only way that she would be confirmed would be with the support of Republicans, because there are several Democrats who have said that they're implacably opposed to her. Until a few weeks ago, I thought that was quite unlikely. I don't know if it's likely or not now, but I do think it's possible since the White House is talking about moving ahead with Rahm Emanuel's nomination as ambassador to Japan and doing that with the support of some very unlikely bedfellows. We talked about that, I think, last week and the week before, Lindsey Graham and, and other Republicans who you wouldn't expect to be aligned with Joe Biden. So FDA commission is an opportunity for Biden to show his uh, bipartisan chops. It it could be. And I think that it shouldn't be a partisan position. I I I think that one of the one of the things that's really important and one of whoever the FDA commissioner is, they're going to have to restore the credibility that was shredded, honestly, in the last year of the Trump administration as a president, the HHS secretary openly battled with and denigrated FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn and the agency's staff. There's some of that that's going on today. Their perceptions that Janet Woodcock committed FDA to approve COVID-19 vaccine boosters before the data had been reviewed. You could argue it both ways whether she actually did that, but definitely widespread perceptions that that's what she did. And then there's the kind of whiplash-inducing gyrations of advisory committee committees and leaders at FDA and CDC as they went back and forth on the booster decisions, all those things haven't bolstered confidence. It's really going to be the job of the next FDA commissioner to reverse the erosion of FDA's independence and credibility. Another thing that's going to be really important is going to be for the next FDA commissioner to be able to assert FDA's independence. There are battles that are happening now, there always are, between FDA, CDC, and NIH over the lines of authority, the lines of authority are blurred, and not having a Senate-confirmed FDA commissioner makes it much more difficult for the FDA commissioner really to assert the agency's prerogatives and even to push back against the White House if that needs to be done. What about some of the other high-level positions at FDA, Steve? Are you hearing anything about who might be filling some of those roles? No, I, I don't know who's going to fill them, but it it is interesting. I had a story that I wrote along with a commentary about the FDA commissioner last week, pointing out that there are some pretty big shoes to fill, and there may be more shoes to fill coming up. We've talked on the podcast about Marion Gruber, the head of vaccines at CBER, and her deputy, Phil Krause, resigning at the end of October and the beginning of November, respectively. Teresa Toygo, associate director for drug safety at CEDAR, has also announced that she's going to be leaving. I think this week will be her last week there. Alice Unger, the director of the Division of Cardiology, Hematology, Endocrine, and Renal in Cedar's Office of New Drugs, recently left. So those are all open positions. Almost all of the positions in the Office of the Commissioner are being filled on an acting basis. They're not going to be filled on a permanent basis until a permanent commissioner has been appointed. And then there are a number of people who have been at FDA for a very long time, and there has to be an expectation that at some point they will depart. Bob Temple, I think, holds the record for longevity there. He's the deputy director at CEDAR. He joined FDA in 1972, before many of the people who are listening to this podcast were born. Diane Maloney, associate director for policy at CEBER, joined CEBER in 1985. And there are a number of people from the early 90s. So I think that inevitably the next commissioner is going to be responsible for appointing or overseeing the recruitment process for some very important positions that are really going to redefine the agency for the coming generation. 
All right. Looking forward to figuring out who it is. Let's turn to our deal in focus. A deal with syndax gives insight a therapy with a differentiated mechanism of action in the evolving marketplace for chronic graft versus host disease drugs. It complements Jacophy in Insight's portfolio and could set the company up to develop wholly owned combination regimes. Insight is paying Syndax $117 million up front to share global rights to axitilimab. That's an anti-CSF1R therapy. And Insight is also buying $35 million worth of Syndax stock. It's interesting, Jeff, the GVHD market is heating up. We just saw Sanofi acquire Cadmon for their recently approved GVHD therapeutic. And I believe there are a couple other new mechanisms that we're starting to see moving later into the pipeline. So it should be a pretty interesting space. Yeah, I know uh, FDA just approved Jacophy for the indication last week. And the new therapy that Insight is getting from Syndax is in a pivotal phase two trial to treat chronic GVHD in a third line setting. We'll be looking for data in about a year and change, 2023. Coming up this week on biocentury.com, in addition to Stephen's Hong Kong story, We'll likely have a story from Steve after his conversation with the chair of Biocon. Is that happening, Steve? Oh, yeah. So I spoke with Kieran Mazumdar Shaw, the chair of Biocon, the biggest and kind of preeminent biotech company in India, which has recently done a deal with the Serum Institute of India. The Serum Institute of India is the largest vaccine manufacturer by volume in the world. The interesting thing about these two companies is that they've had completely different focuses. Serum Institute of India has never had a product approved in a developed market. All of their vaccines have gone to developing markets. Biocon is focused almost exclusively on developed markets. And part of the reason for this deal is to change their focuses or to broaden them. So Biocon will be focusing some of its products toward developing markets. And probably more interestingly, Serum Institute of India is going to have an outlet for selling its vaccines in developed markets. It's also going to enhance Biocon's um, antibody manufacturing capacity. Excellent. And we'll also have Lauren Martz on how to interpret long-term risks of gene therapies. And Karen Takach-Tuzman will be digging into blood-based tests' ability to diagnose Alzheimer's. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 